BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. Well, our new phone system is supposed to be delivered today. So we're not taking calls today because, you know, it's not installed yet. But uh, I will be responding to Twitter. I'm, I'm going to focus everything on Twitter today because uh, when we tried doing it, um, with uh, Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and all these other things, it just it turned into an absolute mess. So I've got Twitter right in front of me, and I can respond to your questions on Twitter. There's a lot on our show today and a lot going on in the world today. I want to get into the Mueller stuff. I want to get into Clarence Thomas. I want to get into what's going on in the country, the democracy of democracy in Texas. And so let's start right off with our old buddy Greg Palace, the investigative journalist, author, filmmaker, his most recent The Best Democracy Money Can Buy, his website, gregpalast, P-A-L-A-S-T dot com. And of course, you can tweet him at Greg underscore Palast. Greg, welcome back to the program. Glad to be with you, Tom, again. First of all, the mockery of democracy in Texas and the primaries. Are, yeah, there you go. So tell me what you're talking about here. Oh, my God. OK, you know, there's never a bottom. As you know, The secretary of state of Texas had to resign because he was working so hard at manipulating the voter rolls to remove Hispanics. That, of course, the state it was facing lawsuits that were going to cost a bundle. So he left and some of his programs to try to look for alien voters. You know, those those guys that come off spaceships and voted for Hillary Clinton right. uh, that crossed the Rio Grande in their spaceship, those aliens. Just so you know that the Republicans, Chris Kobach, a guy named Donald Trump and others said one million Mexicans voted in the 2016 election. That explains some of Hillary's plurality, but they're not done. So they're sneaking in a lot of little tricks. And this is the problem, like teeny Jim Crow items and going after micro groups to suppress, for example, the handicap vote. Now, that might, you might say that's hitting the bottom. In Texas, a lot, it's, you know, it's a huge place. And so they have, uh, for people in remote areas who are handicapped, who can't easily get to the polls, and elderly people with some type of disability and veterans, they have mobile voting units. And so the legislature just passed, and the governor is expected to sign, the Republican legislature, that the mobile units can't be mobile. Once they set up a polling station in a truck, they can't move it during the day, which will cut out, obviously, a lot of people, a lot of people with disabilities. Wait a minute. Let me get this straight, Craig. They've got a mobile 
uh, van so that uh, that can come to your house so that you can vote if you can't get out of your house. Or if you're... To, like they'll go to a central area, like a bunch of different schools or, or community centers. Okay. Or, um, but well, you know, but but I mean, if it was if it was if it was going to stop at somebody's house, then you could only have literally one person vote every single day, and then that night it goes to another person's house. And in this case, it goes to a community center, and you know, twenty thirty people locally can vote, but then no more people can vote for the day until overnight when it moves. I mean, honestly, seriously, this is what you're telling me. Yeah, I'm serious. I mean, the question is, are they serious? But yeah, they are serious that they that the mobile units cannot be mobilized. They have to park in one, say, a nursing home or community center. And and you have to understand these counties in Texas are gigantic. And uh, well, you know, this makes a lot of sense, Greg. I mean, you know, people who are handicapped, people who are disabled, people people and people who are sufficiently old, they don't get around well and easily and comfortably are people who would tend to vote for things like social security and long-term disability and and uh or as republicans would would say uh stealing from the makers um right. so you know well in I, fact I guess- actually i looked this up i was saying why are they going after the handicapped um you have a lot of demographics which are switching loyalties handicapped uh, disability what they call the disability community which is why uh people with disabilities or people in their family account for uh, most of the population, by the way, most of the voting population, 63%. And, but they tend to vote Democrat. There's been a massive shift. Um, you know, uh, the Greenberg organization uh, has uh, done some very intensive polling on this. And there has been, since Trump came in, uh, people with disabilities are, are uh, fleeing the, the Republican Party, even registered Republicans. So suddenly the Republicans have this new massive, it's a massive demographic. And they're turning on the GOP because they are cutting out the kind of government programs, safety net programs, and and uh, help for the elderly that we have uh, been, uh, you know, that have been growing ever since uh, the Americans for Disability Act and, uh, and obviously New Deal. Um, so they're going after the handicapped, and they understand that this is the new Democratic demographic. This is very similar to the Republican Party's turning on the Asian American voters and using, as you know, our old. A friend cross check, which is which is dying, by the way, where you know, it's, it's uh, the Kansas has stopped issuing cross check lists. And but still uh, people have been are being removed by the hundreds of thousands. And it especially hits the Asian American community very hard, which used to be a pro Republican community. It is shifted to almost close to uh, the uh, voting patterns of African-Americans. 75% of Asian-Americans vote Democratic. So now they are targets. So handicapped is look out. And this is, this is the new thing I'm looking for is, the, is aiming to uh, cripple the handicapped vote. That's absolutely mind-boggling. The California primary games start. What are you talking about here? Oh, boy. You know, we have democracy in California, meaning the Democratic Party controls the votes. One party state. And so the primaries, and it's, we have a secretary of state, Alex Padilla, who's the Catherine Harris of California. Oh, no. And, and in 2016, I did an investigation of what happened in the primary where Bernie Sanders was leading the polls and suddenly he lost by supposedly 200,000 or so votes. What was not reported was about 700,000, about three quarters of a million votes were disqualified, voided, spoiled, as they sometimes call it, by this, the rules of the Secretary of State, Alex Padilla. Now, Alex Padilla, like Catherine Harris, when she was Secretary of State of Florida, was chairwoman of the George Bush campaign, 
and somehow Bush was declared, she declared him the victor and president of the United States. In the case of Alex Padilla, he is also running, was running the uh, Hillary Clinton campaign in the state while being in charge of the voting. Now, he has endorsed our senator in California, Kamala Harris. Which makes a lot of sense. He's a California we, politician, so yeah, is she. And, and she endorsed him when he ran for office. So it's a sure. nice little club, but he is in charge of the vote. So here's the problem. How do you lose three quarters of a million votes that have been cast? The answer is a lot of people are turned away too. It's think of these letters, NPP, no party preference. We have millions, it's the biggest voting state in America. We have millions of voters literally who register as no party preference, what we often call independent. Right. And the independent voters have at least on the books, technically the right to vote in the Democratic primary. In fact, they're they're about as big a group as the Democrats. So California is an open primary state. Is that what you're saying? It's an open. Well, only in Democratic. The Republicans don't open their primary. Oh, that's interesting. So um, but here's what happens. Go ahead and, you know, try to get Alex Padilla to send you a Democratic Party ballot or to count that ballot. So, for example, if you're an NPP voter on Election Day, now, you've gotten a ballot which doesn't have a Democratic primary in. A lot of people say, where's Bernie Sanders? Well, you have to go to the poll with your ballot. And by the way, bring your envelope. The woman in front of me at the poll forgot to bring her envelope, so they disqualified her vote. And um, you have to turn that in and ask for something called a crossover Democratic Party ballot. Now, ready? It's just like saying, mother, may I? Now, if you ask for a Democratic Party ballot, and you get one, as a couple hundred thousand people did, asked for the Democratic Party ballot because they were NPP voters, which are millions, and they got those, uh, they got Democratic Party ballots. Well, guess what? Those ballots didn't get counted because you're not a Democrat. You have to get something that is printed and marked crossover Democratic Party ballot. Hmm. Uh, you ready for that? Now, most people don't know that. And in several counties, such as Santa Rosa, if you ask for the crossover, if you don't ask for the crossover Democratic Party ballot, who knows that? Um, they're not allowed to tell you. They all they can tell you is, "Sorry, you can't get a Democratic Party ballot." And people scream and holler and cry and say, "I'm supposed to get one," and they walk away. Wait a minute. The, 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 is this a law? The policy? The rules of the party? You can't. You, there's no Plan B. You can't get the second. You can't get the crossover ballot. You can get, but if you don't know that the term is crossover ballot, in many counties, you're not even allowed to be told you can get a crossover ballot. And remember, the little old lady behind the desk doesn't necessarily, and most of them don't even know you're supposed to get the crossover ballot instead of the Democratic right. Party ballot. Right. In Orange County, for example, there were um, the poll workers who were told to give the independent voters who asked for the Democratic Party ballot, give them a provisional ballot. Now, um, Which is never counted. <laughs> yeah, no, I, all, I, I understand all at, that. You have to and look Greg, at the original ballots in California. It's like filling out the SAT. You make one mistake and it's voided. But here's the real kicker. If you successfully fill out that provisional ballot and vote in the Democratic primary, but you're an NPP voter, it doesn't count because you're supposed to use the crossover ballot. Right. Like, yeah, I get it. Me. I totally understand it, Greg. And sorry to be moving you along here, but we've got about a minute. You know, I grew up in Michigan. Michigan, the Republicans crossed over. It's an open primary state. Republicans crossed over and voted in the Democratic primary to send George Wallace as the Democratic Party nominee for president. I mean, is it not reasonable to assume that these rules were originally put in place to prevent massive Republican crossover voting to screw with the Democratic primary? Only NPP voters can ask for that crossover ballot. But here's the trick. According to the Roper poll, the gold standard polling, three of four 
NPP voters, and there were millions, three of four, were voting preferred Bernie Sanders to Hillary Clinton. So if you count the votes, if you count the ballots in the dumpster at Alex Padilla's office, right. you have no, I get all that. Sanders okay, so, so we've got 15 seconds. Is this happening again now? You bet. That's why I'm giving you the warning. Please, if you're in California, register as a Democrat if you want to vote in the Democratic primary. Right. The Anywhere in the country, for that matter. That's good advice. Yeah, it is. So <laughs> it's pretty vote. Pretty I mean, I, I, you might have rights, but, you know, there's also actually getting your vote counted. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Greg Palace, the investigative journalist, author, filmmaker, the best democracy money can buy is his most recent work. Greg his website. You can tweet him at Greg underscore Palace. Thanks, Greg. You're very welcome. Great talking with you. just to share a few kind of factoids with you. If a person is killed by a stranger in the United States right now, like last year, the odds are one in three that that person was killed by a police officer. That's pretty shocking, right? And that that's disproportionately falling on communities of color. So, you know, these are some of the realities we're living with. So I, you know, I encourage you to let people know about these book signings because I've got a heck of a, a, a rant here put together. On Thursday, June 6th, I'll be in New York City at the Strand. On Monday, June 10th, I'll be in Washington, D.C. at Busboys and Poets on K Street Northwest. These are all, by the way, over at TomHarbin.com. It's right up at the top of the page. You get the whole list. On Wednesday, June 12th, I'll be in Portland, Oregon at Powell's, the iconic bookstore in Portland. Worth visiting Portland just to get to. On Sunday, June 23rd, I'll be in Seattle at the Town Hall and uh, with the Elliott Bay Book Company. On Tuesday, June 25th, I'll be in San Francisco. On Friday, June 28th, I'll be in Chicago at the Frugal Muse. On Saturday, June 29th, I'll be in Minneapolis at Common Good Books. And on Friday, July 12th, I'll be in Philadelphia at Netroots Nation. So uh, that's the lineup for the, the coming book signings. So I hope your Thursday is going as well as mine is. It's been a fascinating day. And one of the more fascinating things that I've been learning, I've learned over the last year or so actually, is the benefit of CBD oil. CBD cadavidiol, it's, it's one of the ingredients of marijuana, but it's also in, found in hemp, which is the legal cousin of marijuana. Doesn't get you high. It's non-intoxicating. But it does, this is the, the you know, one of the principal components that has these really, really high quality pain relieving and anti-inflammatory uh, properties. So you can use this, it doesn't get you high at all, but boy, does it help me sleep. I'll tell you, because I don't feel the pain in my back that uh, has been waking me up since I broke my back when I was 19 or 20. Anyhow, the brand that I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals, nuleafnaturals.com. And if you use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, on their website at nuleafnaturals.com, nuleafnaturals.com, new is spelled N-U, uh, you'll get 30% off and free shipping anywhere in the United States. So the code is TOM, T-H-O-M, the website nuleafnaturals, nuleafnaturals.com, for premium cannabinoid wellness. There's only one place, nuleafnaturals.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. 
We're reading from the Mueller report. This is page 61 under the section other potential campaign interest in Russian hacked material. That's the Trump campaign when they throughout 2016, the Trump campaign expressed interest in Hillary Clinton's private email server and whether approximately 30,000 emails from that server had in fact been permanently destroyed as reported by the media. And then, you know, it goes through some stuff that I read yesterday. So just to jump right to the next segment, this is Henry Oknyansky. Trump campaign advisor Michael Caputo learned through Florida-based Russian business partner that another Florida-based Russian, Henry Oknyansky, who also went by the name Henry Greenberg, claimed to have information pertaining to Hillary Clinton. Caputo notified Roger Stone and brokered communication through Stone and Oknyansky. Oknyansky and Stone set up a May 2016 in-person meeting. Oknyansky was accompanied to the meeting by Alexei Rasin, a Ukrainian associate involved in Florida real estate. At the meeting, Raisin offered to sell Stone derogatory information on Clinton that Raisin claimed to have obtained while working for Clinton. Raisin claimed to possess financial statements demonstrating Clinton's involvement in money laundering with Raisin's companies. According to Okinoski, Stone asked if the amounts in question totaled millions of dollars, but was told it was closer to hundreds of thousands. Stone refused the offer, stating that Trump would not pay for opposition research. Oknyansky claimed to the office that Raisin's motivation was financial. According to Okinoski, Raisin had tried unsuccessfully to shop the Clinton information around to other interested parties, and Oknyansky would receive a cut if the information was sold. Raisin is noted in public source documents as the director and or registered agent for a number of Florida companies, none of which appears to be connected to Clinton. The office found no other evidence that Raisin worked for Clinton or any Clinton-related entities. In their statements to investigators, Oknyansky and Caputo had contradictory recollections about the meeting. Oknyansky claimed that Caputo accompanied Stone to the meeting and provided an introduction, whereas Caputo did not tell us that he had attended and claimed that he was never told what information Oknyansky offered. Caputo also stated that he was unaware Oknyansky sought to be paid for the information until Stone informed him after the fact. Page 62. The office did not locate Raisin in the United States, although the office confirmed Raisin had been issued a Florida driver's license. The office otherwise was unable to determine the content and origin of the information he purportedly offered to Stone. Finally, the investigation did not identify evidence of a connection between the outreach or the meeting and Russian interference efforts. B. Campaign efforts to obtain deleted Clinton emails. After candidate Trump stated on July 27, 2016, that he hoped Russia would, quote, find the 30,000 emails that are missing, end quote, Trump asked individuals affiliated with his campaign to find the deleted Clinton emails. Michael Flynn, who would later serve as national security advisor in the Trump administration, recalled that Trump made this request repeatedly, and Flynn subsequently contacted multiple people in an effort to obtain the emails. Barbara Ledeen and Peter Smith were among the people contacted by Flynn. Ledeen, a longtime Senate staffer who had previously sought the Clinton emails, provided updates to Flynn about her efforts throughout the summer of 2016. Smith, an investment advisor who was active in Republican politics, also attempted to locate and obtain the deleted Clinton emails. Ledeen began her efforts to obtain the Clinton emails before Flynn's request as early as December 2015. On December 3, 2015, she emailed Smith a proposal to obtain the emails, stating, quote, Here is the proposal I briefly mentioned to you. The person I described to you would be happy to talk with you either in person or over the phone. The person can get the emails which, one, were classified, and two, were purloined by our enemies. That would demonstrate what needs to be demonstrated, end quote. Attached to the email was a 25-page proposal stating that, quote, Clinton's email server was, in all likelihood, breached long ago, end quote, 
and that the Russian, Chinese, and Iranian intelligence services, quote, could reassemble the server's email content, end quote. The proposal called for a three-phase approach. The first two phases consisted of open source analysis. The third phase consisted of checking with certain intelligence sources, quote, that have access through liaison work with various foreign services, end quote, to determine if any of those services had gotten to Clinton's server. The proposal noted, quote, even if a single email were recovered and the providence of that email was a foreign service, it would be catastrophic to the Clinton campaign. Smith forwarded the email to two colleagues and wrote, moving to page 63, we can discuss to whom it should be referred. On December 16, 2015, Smith informed Ledeen that he declined to participate in her initiative. According to one of Smith's business associates, Smith believed Ledeen's initiative was not viable at that time. Just weeks after Trump's July 2016 request to find the Clinton emails, however, Smith tried to locate and obtain the emails himself. He created a company raised tens of thousands of dollars, and recruited security experts and business associates. Smith made claims to others involved in the effort and those from whom he sought funding that he was in contact with hackers with, quote, ties and affiliations to Russia, end quote, who had access to the emails, and that his efforts were coordinated with the Trump campaign. On August 28, 2016, Smith sent an email from an encrypted account with the subject, Secretary Clinton's unsecured private email server, to an undisclosed list of recipients, including campaign co-chairman Sam Clovis. The email stated that Smith was, quote, just finishing two days of sensitive meetings here in D.C. with involved groups to poke and probe on the above. It is clear that the Clinton home-based unprotected server was hacked with ease. Page 63 of the Mueller Report. Tom Harmon here with you. So, you know, Robert Mueller gave his little uh, song and dance yesterday morning, just before we went on the air, and didn't really do a deep dive into it because at the time it struck me that, you know, he hadn't said anything that wasn't in the report. And this is where I think the Democratic Party really needs to get their act together in terms of just straightforward messaging, because Robert Mueller's not going to do it, right? <laughs> I mean, maybe if they could get him to testify before Congress. He'll do it or he'll say something. But the whole idea that Robert Mueller is going to stand up there and say, well, you know, Trump might have committed crimes. We found lots of evidence that Trump committed crimes. He's not going to say it that way. He's going to say we didn't find evidence that Trump didn't commit crimes, you know, double negative, or we couldn't prove that he didn't commit crimes, stuff like that. So, you know, which is just like confounding to the average person. So the Democrats need to, you know, given the fact that what Mueller said yesterday and what the Mueller reports say, basically the same thing. Number one, they did find evidence of a criminal cover-up by Trump. In fact, in the Mueller report, he lists 10 specific examples of this. Clear examples, unambiguous, of actual criminal cover-up activities by Donald Trump. Trump was scared to death that the Mueller investigation was going to uncover the fact that he had been lying to the American people, he had been lying to Republicans, he had been lying in the Republican primaries about his ties to Russia and his desire to build a Trump hotel in Moscow. He had been lying about all of that. He had been lying about the affairs that he had with Karen McDougal and Stormy Daniels. He'd been lying about all that. And he was scared to death that this Mueller investigation was going to uncover his lies. People were going to realize he's just a liar. And he's mostly scared 
that people are going to figure out that he's not a billionaire, that he's not even worth 100 million bucks. In fact, he may not be worth anything. He might just be living off cash flow and the properties that he's got. Yeah, he's got a bunch of assets, but they're all mortgaged up to the eyeballs. It's like, you know, you're living in a million dollar house, but you owe a million dollars on it. Do you actually have an asset? And how do you pay for that million dollar house? Well, you know, keeping those balls in the air. Well, that's what Trump was doing. The guy is a crook. He's been a crook for 40 years. He's been running what increasingly appears to be not just your garden variety criminal enterprise, but a major, you know, a RICO level criminal enterprise. So Mueller comes along and says, you know, it looks like Trump has committed crimes. I mean, or he says it the other way around. I can't prove that he didn't commit crimes. But if we didn't find evidence, let me, let me rephrase it. If we had found evidence that he didn't commit crimes, we would have said so. Right. So let's just start translating it into English. Mueller has proof that Donald Trump committed crimes, specifically obstruction of justice. And there's a lot of other proof that he's committed a whole lot of other crimes. And the bottom line here is that what Mueller said, what he said yesterday, and this is what I want to get into in some depth after the break, is he said that when Richard Nixon was president, you know, this was in the neighborhood of Watergate. This is 1973. 74 was when the Watergate impeachment happened. The crime actually happened in 73. And Nixon's Department of Justice said, we cannot indict President Nixon because he's so busy running the country. Now, I think that's crazy. And I think it needs to be challenged before the Supreme Court or at least any federal court. But it's never been challenged. It's just the opinion of a lawyer in Nixon's Department of Justice that was then echoed again when Bill Clinton was getting ready to be impeached. By the way, the quote from Mueller that I was mangling from memory here, I just found it and highlighted it. He said, if we had confidence that the president clearly did not commit a crime, we would have said so. And we did not. Right? There, there you go. We did not, however, make a determination as to whether the president did commit a crime. It's just very straightforward stuff. So here's the question, or it's not the question, but a question, is if it is fairly clear that the president has committed a crime, and it was clear that Nixon had committed crimes. Now, we know also that Nixon committed crimes for which he was never even indicted, you know, his sabotaging the Vietnam peace effort of Lyndon Johnson so that he could beat Hubert Humphrey in 1968. We know that Reagan committed multiple crimes for which he was never indicted. We know that George Herbert Walker Bush committed crimes for which he was never indicted. In fact, Bill Barr helped him cover them up and shut down the investigation. He pardoned five people to get Lawrence Walsh off his back back in 1992. But bottom line, if we know that a crime has been committed, by the president. The position that the Department of Justice took in 1973 when they issued this first ruling, and basically I'm guessing that the reason this happened was because the Watergate burglary had happened or where there were other crimes. I mean, at that point in time, it was becoming fairly obvious that Nixon was taking cash bribes in the White House. Literally, people were coming into the White House with briefcases filled with hundreds of thousands of dollars and giving them to Richard Nixon in the Oval Office. You know, the milk lobby did this and there were other groups, you know, one of the unions did this. There were other groups as well that did this. And Nixon was a criminal. So the Justice Department looks at this and says, well, we work for the president. 
because we're part of the executive branch. We're an Article II institution. The Department of Justice operates under the oversight of the Attorney General, and the Attorney General is appointed by the President and, you know, arguably works for the President. So, really, if the President is going to be prosecuted for two reasons, it's not a good idea that we do it. The first reason is that we work for him, and so the American people may never actually trust our determination that, you know, if we say Nixon is guilty of this and this, well, you know, the American people might say, well, he's guilty of those two things, but he's also guilty of that, that, and that, which are even bigger crimes, and why didn't you talk about that? Was that because you work for Nixon? So, you know, they were concerned about that appearance of conflict of interest and all that kind of thing, number one. And then number two, what they said is that the Constitution actually proactively lays out an alternative option for prosecuting a president. And that alternative option is impeachment. The charges are conducted in the House of Representatives, the indictment, which is called the Bill of Impeachment, the Articles of Impeachment. And if the president is indicted by the House of Representatives, in other words, if he's impeached by the House, as happened to Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton, then it goes to the Senate for a trial where the Chief Justice sits before the Senate and presides over this trial as the judge, and the Senate itself is the, is the jury, essentially, and a representative of the House of Representatives comes in and says, you know, here's the case against the President, and then defenders of the President or somebody from the Executive Office comes in and says, here's the case against impeaching the President, and the, ultimately the, the Senate votes on it, and if there's a two-thirds vote to, to throw the bum out, then boom. That president is not only impeached, but also removed from office. So the Office of Legal Counsel back in 73, and again in uh, 90, whatever the year was, 96, 97, 98, whenever it was in there, during the Clinton administration, twice the Office of Legal Counsel in the Department of Justice said, for these two reasons, we should not prosecute a president. They added another reason, by the way, when they were doing this uh, during the Nixon impeachment, and that was the president's job is so big. Now, keep in mind, this was during the Cold War. We were fighting in a hot war in Vietnam. It was a proxy war against China and the Soviet Union and had already metastasized to Laos and Cambodia and was threatening to metastasize into other areas. And there was a lot going on. A lot of legislation was actually consequential legislation. The Endangered Species Act, for example, passed during that impeachment time. So the Office of Legal Counsel is saying, we shouldn't be the ones doing this. Now. That doesn't make it law, right? That absolutely does not make it law. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Stephanie Miller here. If you watch 60 Minutes and you own a home, you just got very nervous. I did. The FBI's former head of cybercrimes warned homeowners that foreign and domestic thieves can steal your home and do it all online. That's because home titles and mortgages are kept in databases that can be hacked. If you have equity in your home, here's how they get you. They simply forge their name onto your home's title, use your home as collateral to borrow cash, and stick you with the payments. And no bank or identity theft program protects you. You need Home Title Lock, America's leading title and mortgage guardian. For pennies a day, Home Title Lock puts a virtual barrier around your home's title and mortgage. If cyber thieves tamper with it, we mobilize to help shut it down. You may already be a victim. Here's how to find out. Go to HomeTitleLock.com and register for your free title scan and report. $100 value, free with sign-up. Don't let cyber thieves steal your home. Go to HomeTitleLock.com like I did. That's HomeTitleLock.com. One more time, that's HomeTitleLock.com. 
There's no law that says that the president can't be prosecuted by the Department of Justice or anybody else. There is certainly no law and not even a constitutional precept that says that the president can't be prosecuted by a state. Now, step into the Wayback Machine and go back to the Clinton impeachment. And Clinton impeachment started with a private party, Paula Jones, suing Bill Clinton for sexual harassment. And the Supreme Court ruled that even though he was a sitting president, and even though his job is so important and we don't want to distract him from his work because, hey, there could be a nuclear war tomorrow morning, which was kind of that third week argument that the, that the Office of Legal Counsel and Justice Department made back in 73. Nonetheless, the Supreme Court said, hey, go after Bill Clinton, have fun, in a civil suit. So here we have the spectrum of ways that prosecutions can happen. The most severe would be an actual federal prosecution where the president is being prosecuted by a federal prosecutor who is working under the direct or indirect supervision of the Department of Justice and the Attorney General on one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, you've got a civil lawsuit. There's a bunch of those going on right now against Trump. You've got some 20 women who are suing him for sexual harassment the same way Bill Clinton was sued by Paula Jones. And Trump is doing absolutely everything he can to delay those. But, the, you know, some, uh, at least one of those is probably going to hit a courtroom sometime in the next year. Maybe, maybe they'll succeed in pushing it after the election. That's what they're trying to do. So the Supreme Court has said, OK, civil lawsuits, fine. President can be distracted from his duties to defend a civil lawsuit. Nobody has ever asked the Supreme Court whether the president, to the best of my knowledge, and if you know something I don't, please tweet it to me at Tom underscore Hartman and, and include a link. I'd appreciate that. But, you know, the bottom line is that, to the best of my knowledge, the Supreme Court has never said whether a president can or cannot be prosecuted by federal authorities. And then, of course, at the high end of this, you've got the impeachment of the president, you know, as the most extreme case. So what I'm suggesting is that this needs to get before the Supreme Court. Now, what I'm not clear about is how you do that in a practical fashion. Now, I know how you would do that in a purely legal fashion, a mechanical fashion, is you would have a federal prosecutor unseal an indictment of the president of the United States and say, okay, here it is. This is our charge. And let the president appeal it to the Supreme Court saying, you can't do this to me. I'm the president and let it go before the Supreme Court. Now, given the fact that you've got five right-wing ideologues on the Supreme Court right now, that may not work to our advantage, but, you know, there are principles of law here and there are principles of the Constitution. And I would be frankly surprised if even with a right-wing court, the court said, no, you can't prosecute a president, he's above the law. I think that flies in the face. In fact, I think it spits in the face of the idea that no person is above the law in the United States of America, that, that that is the core principle of a republic, of a democracy, of a free government, is that, I mean, you cannot have a functioning republic if you do not have absolute respect for the rule of law and every person in the country accountable to the rule of law, including the president. This is where the Roman Republic went nuts in the hundred years before well, in the 60 or 80 years leading up to the assassination of Julius Caesar, and certainly after the assassination of Caesar, up until that point, even the head guys were considered not to be immune from anything. 
right? And after that, they became the state and the Caesar became one and the same. And this is the direction that Trump is moving us, is that the state, that is the United States of America, and Donald Trump are one and the same. He speaks for America. America speaks for him. You can't disentangle them. And I would say that you have to disentangle them. They're very different things. But Robert Mueller came right out and said yesterday that the Office of Legal Counsel says we can't prosecute the president. He added that there was an issue of fairness, that if a president is being prosecuted and the Office of Legal Counsel holding, and let me rephrase that, that if an indictment is drawn against the president, but because of this Nixon OLC memo, we're not going to actually be able to prosecute him and have a trial in which he can defend himself. Therefore, because he can't defend himself, because the Office of Legal Counsel says, wouldn't be prudent, therefore, we shouldn't even lay down the indictment. And therefore, Mueller said, and he said this very clearly yesterday, the Office of Legal Counsel memo, however, does say that we can investigate the president because we want to get this information on the record while memories are still fresh and the evidence is still available, presumably so that when the president leaves office, he can be prosecuted. Although maybe not, I don't, you know, it's a lot of it's going to depend on statutes of limitations and political will and all these kind of things. I mean, we've never seen any evidence of that happening in the past, but that's the situation. So I would love to see this thing tried before the Supreme Court, just like the Paula Jones case was, just like the ability of, of a sitting president to face a civil lawsuit. I think that the president facing a criminal lawsuit should be tested. And like I said earlier, I don't know of a way for a federal prosecutor to do that because they could be stopped by Bill Barr. I do, however, think that if the state of New York, for example, since that's where Trump has committed so many of his crimes, from bank fraud to insurance fraud to the crimes where his daughter, Ivanka, was, you know, when the Trump Soho was being rolled out and she was telling investors that they had this really, really high level of sales when, in fact, it was a really low level of sales, that's fraud. Right? Ivanka Trump was nakedly engaged in fraud. Donald Trump and his sons were nakedly engaged in fraud. This is what he pled guilty to with Trump University. He has yet to be charged with regard to his, to his real estate holdings, but there's all kinds of lawsuits happening right now and will continue to. So if the attorney general for the state of New York were to say, okay, that's it. We are going to issue an indictment against Donald Trump. Boom, at that point it goes to the Supreme Court. And then we're gonna find out then we're going to find out if the Office of Legal Counsel holding their ruling that, no, you can't prosecute a sitting president because he's got such an important job and because the Constitution provides impeachment as an alternative remedy, although the Constitution never says, nowhere does it say you can't prosecute a sitting president. I think the whole idea would be considered bizarre by the founders and framers, frankly. Uh, just bizarre. But the only way this is going to be tested, in my opinion, now, again, as I said, if, you've, if you know something I don't, tweet it to me during this break, and I'll respond to it afterwards. But it looks to me like the only way that the president can be, that we can test this, and we can blow up this OLC memo, is by having a state prosecutor bring it forward. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. So, I think it's... There's a big responsibility now on the shoulders of the Attorney General for the state of New York. 
Tom Harbin here with you. Letitia James just might save the Republic. This entire thing is just absolutely fascinating. Here you've got Robert Mueller coming out yesterday saying, if this office had confidence that the president clearly did not commit a crime, we would have said so. And we did not. Right. In other words, yeah, there's a decent chance Donald Trump committed a crime. But then he goes on to say, Bob Mueller goes on to say that we can't really prosecute the president because the Office of Legal Counsel, which is basically the lawyers inside the Justice Department, the Justice Department's lawyers, the ones who tell the Justice Department what they can and can't do based on their read of the law and the Constitution and everything else. Those lawyers back in 1973, when, uh, you know, <laughs> criminal Nixon was in office, and again in the 90s, you know, around the time of Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton's impeachment, when Clinton was being accused of sexual harassment and worse, those lawyers in both cases in the Office of Legal Counsel said, well, you can't prosecute a president, a sitting president. Now, nowhere in the Constitution does it say that. Nowhere, literally nowhere. Nowhere, if you go back, I mean, you know, yes, Alexander Hamilton, in the opening days of the Constitutional Convention, when they were first laying out Articles 1, 2, and 3, and who, who's going to do what, Alexander Hamilton got up and gave this speech about how the president should be elected for life, and he should be called Your Highness, Mr. President. And he was laughed out of the room. I mean, literally laughed out of the room. He got so PO'd. He was so angry about this, so offended, so hurt that he went back to New York and he skipped a couple of weeks of the Constitutional Convention just because just he felt he had lost face. So, you know, it's pretty clear to me that the founders never thought that the president should be above the law. But the Office of Legal Counsel, the Department of Justice, has said, you know, for a variety of reasons, number one, the main one being the president has such important work to do. President Nixon is managing the country through a cold war and, you know, a hot war in Vietnam and a proxy war with the Soviet Union and China. And, you know, we can't, you know, nuclear stakes are really high and we just can't do this, number one. Number two, there's an alternative way to hold the president accountable. It's for Congress to do it through impeachment. So we don't have to. And number three, if the office of the attorney general was to open a prosecution of a sitting president, you'd have this weird situation where the president's own attorney general, his appointee, was supervising the prosecution of the guy who put him in that office. That's bizarre. So this is this was basically the argument that the, that the office of legal counsel was making. But it's no law. There's no law that says the president can't be prosecuted. There's nowhere in the Constitution that says this. And the Supreme Court has already ruled that a president can be prosecuted in a civil case, which is what the Paula Jones case was, which led Bill Clinton to lie about having, having sex with Monica Lewinsky, which led to Bill Clinton being impeached for actually committing a crime when he was trying to cover up what wasn't a crime. You know, having sex with somebody, a consenting adult who you're not married to, not a crime. So it gets really weird. So here's where Letitia James comes into this. There's no way that the Justice Department is going to open an indictment of Trump. Mueller made that very clear yesterday. But it's entirely possible that the New York Attorney General's office could open an investigation into Trump. I mean, why not? Right? And if the pushback then coming from the Trump administration is, wait a minute, I'm president, you can't prosecute me criminally. You know, we know that you can do it civilly, right? The Supreme Court said that in the Clinton-Paula Jones case. But, you know, Trump says, you can't prosecute me civilly. Let's get it before the Supreme Court and find out, or criminally, rather. Let's get it there.
You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. And I think there's a number of attorney generals across the United States who might consider prosecuting Donald Trump, but the person who's probably got the most serious evidence of his crimes, it's got to be Letitia James in New York State. I think that this is a very serious possibility. I see Gene Koch uh, tweeted me, and Gene Koch says New York AG James should start by prosecuting Trump's kids, then work her way up to the Grand Fromage, the big cheese. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, I mean, you just want to start someplace, just some random place. I start looking at Trump Soho and Ivanka. And I believe it was Don Jr. It might have been Eric. But I know Ivanka was involved in this. The attempts to sell these properties where they were lying to potential buyers, potential essentially investors in Trump Soho about the rate of occupancy. They were nakedly, this has been well documented. I mean, you know, there are so many frauds that the Trump crime family has perpetrated. So Eric Durkin wrote a piece in The Guardian back a couple of weeks ago, May 7th. And speaking of Letitia James and noting that this is the attorney general for the state of New York called Donald Trump an illegitimate president who, uh, that her words, and who should be removed from office, and she vowed to use every legal avenue to investigate Trump and his business dealings. And, you know, I see that as broadly a good thing. Trump complained that the attorney general in New York, Letitia James, quote, openly campaigned on a get Trump agenda. Her investigations are part of the witch hunt hoax. Right. And Trump keeps, you know, this morning as he was walking out to the helicopter, and it's by the way, it's just absolutely bizarre how he does this. He, he's not doing press conferences. We don't get to meet in the press room where you can actually hear what the questions are from the media. And because you can't hear, because he's got the helicopter running in the background, right? Because you can't hear the questions. I mean, it used to be reporters could say things like, well, Mr. President, according to uh, the Attorney General in New York State, you committed multiple crimes in New York. What say you? And now we don't get to hear that part of the question you know, with the uncomfortable truths that Trump is being confronted with. And instead, what's happening is that, you know, a question is asked of him. We don't hear the question because the helicopter noise is so loud. And then Trump just says whatever he wants to say. And as CNN pointed out this morning in their Chiron, he was just a flurry of lies is what Trump did this morning. Literally a flurry of lies. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Many investors are asking, how long will this economic bubble last? When the inevitable crash takes place, what will that look like for your retirement? Will you have enough time to rebuild, or are you currently looking for ways to safeguard your existing portfolio? If the worst happens, it won't just be the markets and real estate. With the Fed's nonstop money printing, a dollar collapse is even more concerning. There are simple charts the Federal Reserve provides to help us investors make educated decisions. Google the FRED chart on the purchasing power of the dollar and look at the data yourself. Also take notice that the last 100 years of recessions have consistently occurred within 10 years from each other. The last recession was in 2008. What does that tell you? Gold and silver are statistically the best hedge against volatile markets and economies. Call my friends at ITM Trading at 1-888-OWN-GOLD. Ask them for their free gold protection guide and protect your future while you still can. Call 1-888-OWN-GOLD. That's 1-888-OWN-GOLD. So anyhow, back to Letitia James. He called her investigation part of the witch hunt hoax. Obviously, it's not. 
this guy has been a grifter and a criminal in New York State for years and years and years. She is now sending subpoenas to Deutsche Bank, and they are giving her information. So stay tuned to this. In fact, she said uh, this was uh, back in the very first week of May. She said, we follow the facts and evidence wherever it leads, and no one is above the law. Well, this gets back to my earlier point that what Bob Mueller said yesterday is that according to the Department of Justice, the president is above the law. The president cannot be indicted. And that the only mechanism that can be used to hold a president accountable is impeachment. That seems weird, awkward, difficult, unusual, and unconstitutional, frankly. We follow the facts and the evidence wherever it leads, and no one is above the law, including powerful organizations like the NRA, including the most powerful individual in this country, the President of the United States, is really about the rule of law. Amen. And then, you know, Robert Mueller came out yesterday and said, yeah, hey, there's no shortage of evidence that this guy's a crook. Right. And he added charging. This is Mueller's words. He said charging the president with a crime was therefore not an option we could consider. So he started his investigation. And for two years throughout this entire investigation, he was operating on the assumption that he could not accuse Donald Trump of committing any crimes at all. Which is why when you read the second part, the second half of the Mueller report, part two of the Mueller report, it lays out 10 specific incidents, and, and arguably 11 or 12, specific incidents where Donald Trump broke the law. And it tells what he did, when he did it, how he did it, and most importantly, why he did it, which is the corrupt intent part that makes it so criminal. And of course, what he was trying to do was he was trying to shut down the Mueller investigation because he was terrified that Americans would learn that he had been lying to us, that Republicans would learn that throughout the Republican primary, he had been lying to the entire Republican Party, saying, oh, I've got no business dealings with Russia, when he was begging the Russians, and specifically Putin, offering him a free apartment in the top of Trump Tower worth 50 million bucks if he would approve the construction project in downtown Moscow. So he was lying to the American people. He was lying to you. He was lying to me. He was lying to our Republican neighbors and friends and relatives, saying that he had nothing going on with Russia while Russia was helping to get him elected. And by the way, this morning he tweets, and this is bizarre, I had nothing to do with Russia helping me to get elected. Literally, those are his exact words. I think he's removed the tweet now. But, you know, <laughs> he knows. I mean, come on, he knows. So, anyhow, they, they said charging the president with a crime was therefore an option we could not consider. In other words, it wasn't that there was a lack of evidence. It wasn't that we're exonerating Trump, which is what he's claiming. It's that our reading of the Constitution and the law is that we can't prosecute this guy. But what we will do is we'll lay out a detailed roadmap. Breadcrumbs is the way they like to talk about it in the media. We'll lay out a detailed roadmap about how specifically you can impeach this guy. Here are the impeachable offenses. Here's when he did them. Here's how he did it. Here's who he did them with. Here's the specific evidence. Here are links to the testimony in these cases. And, you know, a lot of it is buried or redacted, but it's right there. And here's why he did it. He did it because he didn't want people to know that he was cutting this deal with, he was trying to cut a deal with Russia literally right up to election day. Number one. Number two, he didn't want the American people to know that he had been lying to them, particularly since the Access Hollywood tapes came out. 
And remember, the day that the Access Hollywood tape came out where he bragged about grabbing women by the, by the, by the private parts, literally that day, like within an hour and a half of that tape being released, and it certainly grabbed the headlines across the United States. And that was the point at which a lot of Republicans pulled back on their endorsements of Donald Trump. Within an hour and a half of that coming out, that was when they started dropping the emails that had been hacked out of Podesta and the DNC. You know, the WikiLeaks started dropping them, and you read the correspondence between WikiLeaks and Don Jr., and they were coordinating this stuff. I mean, it looks like collusion to me, at least with WikiLeaks, you know, that this was pretty bizarre stuff. Bob Mueller said the department policy explicitly permits the investigation of a sitting president. The investigation explicitly permits the investigation of a sitting president because it is important to preserve evidence while memories are fresh and documents are available. In other words, Trump's not going to be around forever. He's not going to be president forever. And if we're going to prosecute him, now, I understand that some of these crimes, particularly the election crimes, have five-year statutes of limitation. So if Trump gets reelected, he may be in the clear for some of this stuff. But I'm confident there are a number of things where the statute of limitations will not have run out. And then Mueller said, okay, we cannot charge him with a crime, but we can investigate him for a crime. So what is the remedy for a criminal president? What do you do if you have a criminal president? And Mueller came right out and said it. He said, and I quote, the Constitution requires a process other than the criminal justice system to formally accuse a sitting president of wrongdoing. Now, the, you know, this is my problem with the way Bob Mueller words everything. He, he, he's a lawyer, <laughs> he, and he writes like a lawyer. He speaks like a lawyer. He was clearly very uncomfortable. In fact, I would say he was clearly very nervous yesterday. His voice was high. He stumbled a few times on reading what he must have read many, many times. A lot of thought went into it. But why didn't he just say, you know, we can't prosecute him, even if we have evidence of crimes, but Congress can. It's called impeachment. I mean, that, that would be the way a normal human being would say it. But instead, he had to say, the Constitution requires a process other than the criminal justice system to formally accuse a sitting president of wrongdoing. And then he says, and this is amazing, and notice there's not an if here, there's a when. When a subject of an investigation obstructs that investigation or lies to investigators, it strikes at the core of their government's effort to find the truth and hold wrongdoers accountable. In other words, Donald Trump has been lying to everybody, and he was lying to us. And it made it harder for us to hold him accountable. So anyhow, I, I, I would love to see Letitia James go after this. We'll see where it goes, right? But uh, Mueller ends by saying, basically, this was not a witch hunt. We are not angry Democrats. He thanked everybody and called the investigation independent. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Fair and balanced, you might say. Tom Hartman here with you. Let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. On the line with us is former Congressman Bob Nay, author of Sideswipe. Hey, Bob. Hello, Tom. How are you? I am well. So what's up in the world? Well, I, I know Mueller's the top story, but I've got to start with Bolton if I could. Please. That's my favorite political punching bag. You know that. Mm, yeah. the reasons over the years. Well, you knew him quite well, didn't you? You were both, you served in Congress together? 
You know, he would come over when he was working for Bush. He would come over to my office. He, he made an appointment to, just to check out on Iran where I would stand because he was trying to stop anybody that was trying to make communication. And because, we were working with Bush administration, his own administration. Yeah, he was coming over trying to sabotage. Right, and this was because you were the only guy in all of Congress who actually speaks Farsi, the language that they speak in Iran, and who used to work and live in Iran, and you knew the culture and the people there and all that kind of stuff. Which is why so, they, which is why the Iranian government reached out to you when they wanted to cut a peace deal with George W. Bush, and and you know that ended up getting you bounced out of Congress and all kinds of horrible things. Anyhow, back to Bolton and Pompeo. What's up? Well, there's a great story today, and it's it's about Trump undercutting Bolton in public. Now, the president was inaccurate when he undercut him, but that's still okay. He's still undercutting. And in Japan, the president was talking about the North Korean missile tests, and they didn't violate. Uh, the United Nations restrictions. While the president's actually wrong, the test did violate it, but the bottom line is he still rebuked uh, Bolton in an indirect way by saying, you know, it didn't bother him. Then he specifically, the president, mentioned he didn't want regime change in Iran, which Bolton, of course, Tom, as you know, for years has called not only for regime change, but he's called for a preemptive bombing of Iran, including the use of nuclear weapons against Iran. So this is a big deal. And then if you look at how interactive the president was on Netanyahu's campaign, definitely basically interfering, in fact, with the Israeli elections, with everything he could do because of the closeness, you know, also of his son-in-law and Netanyahu, who, by the way, the son-in-law was just over there talking with Netanyahu. But Netanyahu's tra having trouble this now. To, right. Yeah. Just this morning to form yeah. the coalition. Jared, Jared Kushner is in, in Jerusalem right now. Right, exactly. And part of the problem for Netanyahu now with the Trump administration, you know, Netanyahu was utilizing the Trump administration, quote, going after Iran, they're going to go after him, while the president's starting to backtrack now on that. So that's going to cause a, a little bit of a political problem in a tight coalition for Netanyahu also. But it's interesting because if you look at the history, now this is the third national security advisor, Bolton is, but if you look at the history of President Trump, what does he do? He, inside the orbit Right in the White House, he starts to question, well, what do you think of Bolton, for example, which we know he's doing from sources that I'm in contact with in D.C. And then also he then starts to make fun of people, which we know he's done about Bolton's mustache, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. and, and then, of course, he then takes to the point where they leak this out of the White House. Then the next step is they call it fake news and it's not true that he's going to fire him. And the next step is he fires him. And Bolton has been in conflict with the secretary of state. And it's not over policy, by the way, because they're both hawks. It's over style. So I, I'm kind of thinking that Bolton is not going to be long for this administration, most likely. Fascinating. Well, that would be a good thing for peace in the world, actually. Right. Right. Yeah. And then um, on to Mueller. And it's interesting because of the fact that when we look at this press conference, something that, I don't know, jumped out at me, I'm sure everybody else, that uh, people that have served in Congress or, you know, have been familiar with it or people's opinions, is the fact, Tom, that Mueller just says, okay, I'm a private citizen, um, I'm, I'm going away. I've said what I can say, which means, will there be a showdown, of course, with Chairman Nadler? Now, Chairman of the Intel Committee, Adam Schiff, has already said, look, he needs to do his duty and come talk to the Congress. And Chairman Nadler more or less kind of sidestepped the question and said, well, he said what he's going to say today, basically, is what he said. Right. I can't imagine, though, that Mueller would have a good excuse to not actually come and, uh, and testify. And I think if and when he does, I mean, he's going to get the direct questions from Democrats. Did you find evidence that Donald Trump committed crimes? Yes or no? And he's going yes. to have to say yes. 
Right. He's no more be, no more double and triple negatives. Right. Because if we look at the press conference he had, which he didn't take questions, but he very, very carefully calculated some of the words. And then when it came to the obstruction of justice, and he, he still calculated some of the of the sentences to basically uh, say, yes, you know, they didn't clear him, but then he also left some doubt as to what happens and the process and what is left out there that's untold. So, you know, by not answering questions, of course, he basically tries to close the door on the subject. But I would assume that the Congress, I would think, are going, they're going to try to get him there. Yeah, yeah, I and think you're right. Then they'll make the decision. And also, I don't know if you've talked today about the federal subpoenas on uh, Mar-a-Lago. No, I have not. Please inform us. Well, there is a, a Chinese woman. Her last name is Yang. She goes by Cindy Yang. And she ran massage parlors. And she's part of a human trafficking investigation. So yeah, this, is the, was, this is the massage parlor where Robert Kraft, she had since sold it, but it's the massage yeah. parlor where Robert Kraft got busted for having sex with the masseuse. Right. That's it. That same massage parlor. And she was a frequent visitor of mar lago And what they're finding out now is that she, in fact, sold access to the White House, to Trump a campaign, Trump associates, and she sold access in China. In other words, she was being paid to give access. And she does a frequent uh, Mar-a-Lago. So now the feds have actually subpoenaed Mar-a-Lago. And I think parts of the, of the campaign committee, the story was a little bit sketchy, but parts of the campaign committee to find out about her because she's also has been a donor. So this is very interesting that there's a Fed subpoena. This is part of the investigation into the missing money from the uh, inauguration. I mean, the inauguration raised, what, a hundred and some odd million dollars, much more than Obama had raised, and he had raised more than anybody before him. And as far as anybody can tell, they only spent about a half of it. Where's the rest of the money? Bob Ney with Talk Media News. He's also the author of Sideswiped, an absolutely brilliant book about how Washington, D.C. works. And Bob, thank you so much for being with us. You're listening to Tom Hartman. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 